he probably doesn't care if the Republicans win or not. Like, it's not in his mind. He's not thinking of the greater good of the party, right? You know, he's got really nothing to lose except his dignity. He also just doesn't care about burning the party down. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 17th. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about Donald Trump's presidential announcement this week in Mar-a-Lago. How are Republicans responding? Was it a hit? Was it a dud? Does anyone really care right now other than political reporters like us? Tara has the goods. And later, Dylan Byers is here to discuss the media's surprisingly muted response to Trump's 2024 announcement. And he'll examine what it portends for his third shot at the presidency. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Beat. Happy Thursday, everybody. Donald Trump announced this week that he's running for president in 2024. There was no escalator this time as there was in 2016. There was no roaring crowds like there were in 2020. There's no Ivanka Trump who said she's going to sit this one out. And it kind of feels like as much as the political press is following this, it's a weird time to announce. It's right before the holidays. And I want to talk to Tara Palmieri about why now and like what impact this might have on the Republican landscape for 2024. What was your take from watching this? He tried to have a triumphant announcement at one of his lowest points in his career. It's kind of hard to gin up that buzz when people are comparing this to a week after January 6th. No one wants to hear from you right now, bro. And yet you are throwing a big parade for yourself. Yeah. Even Matt Gates said he wasn't going to go. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't. They had their leadership races. But still, like, there are very few people out there willing to even endorse him or say anything positive about him. Of course, you're in that position. So you frame it as like, I'm the underdog. This is the establishment coming back after me again. This is exactly like where I was in 2016. They're framing it that way as in like, Trump is again besieged. He is every man with the establishment, you know, trying to press him down, but he will persist. And yes, that actually works with his base. It's such a catch-22 for everyone. Everybody wants him to go away. Literally everyone. What do you mean literally everyone? Because like 40% of the Republican base probably like still loves the guy. Oh, yeah. You're talking about like elected officials, like like the quote-unquote Republican establishment, whatever that means anymore. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's not 40%. I bet you it's 30 and plummeting, by the way. Yeah. And I'm sure even some of them are saying like, eh, DeSantis might be our better shot at finishing the Trump agenda. Speaking of DeSantis, like the Republican Governors Association was meeting in Orlando just as Trump was doing this announcement. I think Axios reported that Chris Christie spoke to like a bunch of donors and consultants, the kind of people who go to these events, uh, RGA events specifically, and basically attacked Donald Trump and got a like rousing ovation from a bunch of governors in the room, Doug Ducey, Pete Ricketts, Mike DeWine, Chris Sununu, et cetera. And some of these guys, including Chris Sununu, who's much more of a moderate, have come out and been like, we got to turn the page on this guy. And then I was also like, I got like texts from like a couple of people at the RGA meeting Like one of them sent me a selfie with like him and Ron DeSantis. Like they were like really excited. Like you can, like there's just this thing, regardless of political party, voters and political junkies, like kind of like, they're always excited about like what's next in the future and who's next in line. And Trump is just starting to feel like old news. 
the reckoning feels like it, it's happened in the Republican Party or is happening because Trump was a loser. And people are just like, we want to win elections now and you need to go away. <laughs> right. But the problem, again, is that as all these people in the Republican establishment say that out loud, it only validates his point that he is the underdog. And so, like, you're in such a catch-22, you can't do anything to get rid of this guy. Donors can't take out a page in the Wall Street Journal and say, it's time to move on from Trump. That's great for Trump. Mitch McConnell can't say it. Kevin McCarthy can't say it. You can't say it's time to move on from Trump. You are the establishment. It's an impossible situation. Look, I mean, I do think there are more cracks in the facade than there were a year ago, six months ago, whatever. For sure. But he should not at all be counted out. One thing that, that jumped out at me, though, was he gave the speech. It was full of red meat, uh, but it was a little more restrained, I feel like, in tone. And then you saw Lindsey Graham came out and tweeted, I liked what I saw from Trump. If he keeps this up, like, he's got to be the front runner for sure. It was something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, Matt Schlapp, the chairman of CPAC, who's like a big Trump sycophant, he went on Newsmax and was and said, well, the speech was like kind of boring and kind of restrained, which is might be offensive to Trump. But it felt like a lot of Republican talking heads and Trump fans were saying like, it's supposed to be like, he needs to be more restrained. Like even Jason Miller, like running up to the speech was like, it's going to be really buttoned up. And there is this, it feels like there's this hope among Trump supporters that he can win again if he is a little less bombastic and a little more restrained and a little more gasp presidential. So in other words, like the tone of it felt intentional. At the same time, there's no goddamn way Trump's going to be more restrained. <laughs> like we've been hearing this song for five years now. Totally. His restraint is also something that probably would bother his base. So again, he's in a catch-22 as well. It's like they like that about him. That's the cult of personality. It's the, I can't be controlled by the establishment. Tara, let me ask you one more thing. Like, we're almost two years from the election. The holidays are about to kick off. Why did Trump decide to do this announcement this early? I mean, this is without precedent. Is it because he has no restraint and sees Ron DeSantis getting on this buzz and he wants to be in the spotlight? For him, there's no reason to sit on the sidelines. A, he gets to consolidate the field. He becomes a presumptive front runner. He can force people to pick sides. Oh, and it helps with indictments that may be coming down the pipe. It's all of those things. Yes, he loses money by declaring early. He changes his status. There are some FEC rules that change. But like, he's under siege legally. Okay, does it hurt the Georgia race? Probably. Has Trump ever really cared about the GOP? No. He could have waited, but according to people close to him, he thought it was a sign of weakness. And I kind of agree. If he changes the date, it does seem weak. So. He had to go through with it. In his mind, he keeps comparing it to 2016. He wants a small team like he had in 2016. And the staff want the hierarchy to be flat because they know that the person at the top always ends up having their head cut off if they try to choke off any power from him or any access to him. Yeah, he wants a scrappy band of rebels around him and he wants to be running everything. He doesn't want to leave anything to anyone else. You know, he's got really nothing to lose except his dignity. And he also just doesn't care about burning the party down. He probably doesn't care if the Republicans win or not. Like, it's not in his mind. He's not thinking of the greater good of the party, right? 
Whereas like Biden might actually be calculating the greater good of the party, right? But Donald Trump, definitely not. Yeah, I think Mitch McConnell would be totally fine if Trump went away. He said this week, like, I don't have a dog in that fight when he was asked about the you know, brewing Republican primary fight, if there is one. No, no, no. I, I've heard actually that more people want to get into the fight because they see Trump being weakened, but that's the wrong response. That response only actually strengthens Trump because it means his diehard followers will likely stick with him, 30% of the race. The rest of the 10 people fight over the rest of them. If the party was going to be smart about it, they would pick one person to challenge Trump and that would be it. But of course, you can't tell egomaniacs they can't run for president when God told them they should run. Yeah, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, you know, I'm sure Nikki Haley, like even Christie, like like these people are all going to divide the vote. The only way Trump isn't the nominee is if it is a, you know, if DeSantis proves his mettle and it doesn't early flame out like Scott Walker, like it has to be a head to head Obama versus Hillary style slugfest. And the vote has to come down to like, 50% plus one at some point. It can't be divided up between all of these different candidates. And there's no Clyburn who's going to be like, everyone get behind one of us. There's no Clyburn in the party. There's no power broker. Trump is still the power broker, really, in a lot of ways. All right, Tara, um, keep reporting on the story for us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy asked Dylan Byers how the media responded to Trump's announcement on Tuesday. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, and joining us here is Dylan Byers. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Ben. Uh, it's been a day now since Donald Trump announced that he was running for president, and I'm curious what you made of the sort of lack of media spectacle surrounding the announcement. Maybe it was just doomed underwhelmed because we all knew it was coming, but I was surprised myself by how unexciting I, I found the announcement to be. Did you watch the announcement live on TV? Yeah, I did. I think there's a lot at play once. And I think the boredom you hear in his own voice has something to do with it. But from a media perspective, I, I think there are two things. One, I think that we, having been through everything that happened in 2015 and then 2016, and then of course his presidency, have a lot more context and a lot more experience with how to deal with the Trump phenomenon and really the Trump circus. And and I think the first time around, it really caught everyone off guard because on the one hand, no one took the prospect that he could win seriously, but it was this sort of show and sort of most um, notoriously on CNN, it became this sort of event with, of course, the, the famous, you know, 45 minutes, an hour where it would just be a shot of the empty podium before he finally took the stage. I think now there is a sense that no one in the media, be it CNN, The New York Times, anyone else, wants to play a part in that show. It is a story. Of course, it's a story. It's a story you can't ignore. You've got a former president running for running for office. But I think there's a desire to contextualize it and put it in its place. Now, print editions don't matter nearly as much as they used to, right? Most of us get our news through our phones. But I did think it was notable when I looked at the front page of the New York Times this morning that you had stories about Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell taking up far greater real estate. And Trump's announcement just barely peaked above the fold on page A1. And, and I think that is right about where it belongs. Take it seriously, but don't play a part in sensationalizing it, which is exactly what Trump 
wants and exactly what he got in 2015 and 2016 by virtue of being such a wild card, so unexpected, and really sort of like this this moment in history that I think the entire media, like the entire political establishment, didn't see coming. I think what is perhaps most notable about the media coverage is, and, and we've talked about it here at Puck a lot, is the coverage he is getting from the Murdoch universe, which has turned against him really aggressively. And, and I'm in New York this week, so I'm, I'm also reading the New York Post print edition. And the coverage there is, is so much more aggressively negative toward him than anything you would see from the mainstream press. The New York Post cover, it was at the very bottom of the page. It said, Florida man makes announcement, page 26. <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. There's a one-two punch here. I think that anyone who all of us, because we all lived through Trump 1.0. But anyone who's sort of, you know, followed the Maggie Haberman or read these books about him, he thrives off the media attention. He doesn't necessarily even need the media attention to be good. He just needs the attention. There, there's a story I remember about when Michael Wolff was sent out to do a, a Hollywood Reporter piece about him, which was not at all complimentary, but he liked the way he looked on the cover. That is the way he thinks. And there's nothing you can do to Trump that is so hurtful as to ignore him, as to not pay attention to him. So I think that response by the media is in a way simultaneously the most responsible thing you can do and is being interpreted by him as the most negative response he could possibly get. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's it's all well and good to um, applaud the the media for having a little bit more restraint this time around. And I, I do think that's real, that the journalists have a deeper sense of their responsibility and how they cover this particular story. At the same time, I mean, before we pat them on the back too much, Trump does not rate the way he used to. I mean, you and I have seen this working at, at digital media companies. You know, you've been on, on air as well. I mean, the ratings go down live on, on, on TV after a certain point. He doesn't click the way he used to. He doesn't drive traffic to websites the way he used to. A lot of networks, websites, news organizations that relied on Trump coverage to juice traffic saw that fall off a cliff. Um, and, and that turned out not to be a, um, a good long-term strategy for them. I was watching Fox News. They cut away from the speech after 40 minutes and they only went back intermittently. CNN cut away after 25 minutes. The broadcast networks did not cover his speech at all. There are two things happening there, right? One is one is the, again, that restraint and that contextualization of the news. Just because he is Donald Trump and this sort of larger-than-life, once-in-a-generation figure does not mean that he gets to dictate how much real estate we in the media give him. On the other hand, that response to the ratings, I think there are two schools of thought about that. One is, yes, the you know, playing to the ratings can be a sort of callous and irresponsible way to deal with the news. Just because something gets a lot of uh, traffic or eyeballs does not mean that it should, it should be given all of that real estate. You have to be sort of responsible when you're thinking about new editorial judgment. On the other hand, and I'm sympathetic to this argument, the ratings can also be an indicator of popular support, which is really what elections are, are ultimately about. So you could make the argument that if, you know, in those, in those heady days of 2015, that if CNN is seeing its ratings go through the roof minute by minute for Trump, part of that is a response to or sort of anticipates the very real enthusiasm that he ginned up among the Republican base. 
I don't think we should ignore those ratings entirely as an early indication of where voter sentiment is. On the other hand, you know, people are drawn to watching car crashes too, and it doesn't mean that we should devote all of our time to, <laughs> to tragedy. Dylan, over at CNN, I, I felt like the difference in how the media coverage played out was particularly noticeable because CNN, of course, was known for really going balls to the walls on their Trump coverage under Jeff Zucker. Now, under Chris Licht, definitely more restrained. Is that in part, do you think, about his pivot away from sensationalism, this desire to be a little bit more serious and politically down the center? Or is this just a reflection of this new media universe where the Trump shock jock gimmick is kind of played out and they don't actually see it rating as well anymore? Yeah, I I think both things are true. I think that if Jeff Zucker were still the head of CNN, having lived through everything that's happened over the past seven years, I don't think he would give him nearly the same amount of real estate that he gave him in 2015. And I think some, my, my, my assumption, um, just remembering how much time was spent on those empty podiums, is that there is a little bit of probably regret or, or maybe something could have been done differently there. But it is also a reflection of two different sort of editorial styles, editorial approaches. Remember, the quote-unquote balls-to-the-wall approach to a news story did not start with Trump. Jeff Zucker had sort of put that into place as a philosophy about how CNN should cover things, whether it was the poop cruise or the missing Malaysian jet. The idea was, let us go all in on a story because at the end of the day, if we are going to compete with all of the other channels on television and all of the streaming services and all of the various modes of entertainment that people have at their disposal, we can't just hop around from a you know, a three-minute news segment to a three-minute news segment to a three-minute news segment. We need to tell a story. We need to have characters. We need to have contributors and analysts and reporters who become household names for people. That was the gamble. And when Trump happened in 2015, that story that usually CNN might have spent six months or nine months on all of a sudden became a a full-fledged six to seven-year story. I don't think that Zucker anticipated that that was going to happen, but it did, and, and it worked out very well for CNN. The Chris Licht philosophy is definitely going back to a more traditional approach to the news, which does hop from, you know, here's the report out of D.C., here's the report out of London, here's the report out of Doha, here's Singapore. And and in that environment, Trump already being relegated by virtue of his diminished status will be further relegated because I think CNN under Chris Licht feels a mandate to not so intensely cover one story at a time. Well, we'll be covering it all here at Puck with um, characteristic restraint, of course. (laughs) Dylan, thanks for stopping by. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.